we're experimenting with video tonight, and and I was just about to tell all my deepest, darkest secrets. So, it's, I did want to confess a few delusions tonight. I was speaking to Valeria, one of our sangha supporters, uh, before the sitting began this evening. And she was uh, telling me that there was a three-day, a three-day Grateful Dead concert, uh, and it brought back memories of the early 1970s, where I used to frequent Grateful Dead concerts, taking psychedelics, psychedelic drugs and then walking around with carnations and putting them in people's faces and telling them, this is everything. <laughs> and for me, this was, this was my, um, one of my uh, expressions of deep appreciation for uh, the divine spark that uh, I was realizing was within uh, my nature and in the nature of that beautiful carnation, even though it sounds quite absurd. <laughs> and so when I started playing with the bowl tonight, it was all part of the, the uh, recovery of this transcendent, <laughs> transcendent nature that uh, started back in the 1970s. And I really think that, that if any of us loses a sense of the transcendent uh, in the busyness of our lives, that we, uh, at, at any time, we, to a person, in some way, our life expresses, sometimes wholesomely, sometimes unwholesomely, it expresses a yearning to reconnect, to find that everything in uh, in life, to find ourselves again, to find our our authenticity, our truthfulness, to find that open-heartedness that that just flows with with love, or to find that that oneness with nature, which is in some ways what I was describing then. And I just finished a period of being unplugged from my daily routine for. Uh, about two weeks, and I actually wrote down what I realized during those two weeks, or what it was like for me to be to be off. And I said, uh, when I wrote my notes, I I realized I got lots of exercise, so that brought my body into a a little bit better balance. I got plenty of rest, so I felt very rested. Uh, I felt uh, I didn't have a schedule, so there was a certain kind of ease with which the days unfolded, which is great. But I did not, in the course of doing those basic experiences of care, I did not experience, did not, was not in regular touch, except for the times that I was hiking in nature. I was not in touch with that to the same extent. Um, that 
I remember in those in those days of the 70s not in touch with that that uh, sense of oneness, not in touch with that that clarity of intention and clarity of of being able to track my intentions, track uh, the motivations behind my speech, my actions and to even track the flow of, of the thinking mind and all that that does to recreate me moment to moment. I wasn't, I, in a sense, I lost my, I lost that spark. I had a very happy time, but I realized because I was not sitting as much, I was not on the Dharma seat as much, I realized that uh, and I can't, I'm not exactly sure why, but I realize, and I think I'm, I can generalize this for all of us, I think we all need to do a little bit more than get enough rest, get enough exercise, uh, eat the right foods. We, all of us, has to do something consciously, intentionally, to maintain that, that heart connection with life, that, that sense of, of unity, that sense of oneness, that, that sense of that I don't exist myself independently apart from anything that I'm touching moment to moment, that life is touching me right where I am and I'm, I'm impacting the world and my thoughts moment to moment are making the world and it's really easy to lose that that touch. I I brought along tonight. See that because I didn't know what I was going to say. I, so much for the video. <laughs> I brought along the line from the Dhammapada that says something to the effect of, "With our thoughts, we make the world." And we, if you think with a, a mind that is um, filled with love, you create a loving world, a mind that's filled with ill will, you create a world of, of unhappiness. And so watch the thoughts because they become your deeds and then your deeds become your actions and this is how we make our lives. And in order to actually track, to stay in touch with, with the uh, life-making, the karma-making, the action-making of our minds, we need to stop. We need to not just have enough rest, have enough food, have enough exercise. We need to listen. need to really be attuned. So this is, to me, the, the new year, even though as I... I, I joked about it a little bit, by the first thing you realize when you close your eyes is you don't know what year it is. You don't even know your name. You don't know anything about yourself if you don't look back and you don't look ahead. It's a beautiful thing in those moments of practice to step out of time and step out of our identities. But paradoxically, it takes days like the, the calendar year coming to an end and a new one beginning, it takes that sometimes to uh, remind us of what we would like to set in motion, what we would like to remember, what we, we would like not to forget, and what, uh, and what we plan to do about it. 
And for me, this, uh, this year, my intention is to stay in touch. To stay here. Not to just take care of myself. All those things are wonderful. But to stay wide awake. To keep my heart wide open. To stay impeccably, if I can, authentic, truthful, sincere. Uh, And to, in keeping with the Noble Eightfold Path, that's really in some ways driven by... Uh, or what really is the engine of the Eightfold Path is wise intention or right intention. And the, the central part of right intention is that we, uh, we incline our life, our mind, our words, our actions to be non-harming, to be inclined toward goodwill and inclined toward renunciation. And why do we do that? Why do we incline toward renunciation? Why do we incline toward uh, goodwill, kindness? And why do we incline toward, um, toward harmlessness, toward not causing suffering? It's really to balance our very addictive tendency of mind to... Uh, to fixate on uh, clinging and craving, holding on, attachment, insatiable wanting. That's the first. That's why we practice renunciation, realizing and remembering what is enough. This is from the Tao Te Ching. To know what is enough is true wealth. I had the wonderful experience of being with my family for the last couple weeks. And I noticed my daughter Molly, who I speak about a lot here on Tuesday night. She's nine. And she's, she's all American in terms of her, her in, in spite of her Waldorf education, she is geared toward the, all the, the toys and all the dolls and all the little things. And she is, when she is in the um, milieu of our, uh, of our daily life and culture, she is a budding hungry ghost. You know what I mean by that? Hungry ghost is somebody with a little mouth and a huge stomach. And I think, oh, maybe she got that from me. Because I think I'm of the three character types that tend to be, that reflect the three poisons, the three things that cause us suffering. The greed type, the aversive type, and the deluded type, the confused type. I am the greed type. And I'm noticing that Molly is is the greed type. She is attuned continually to what she wants to happen, and she's willing to... to she, her attention becomes very narrow, tunnel vision, fixated, and she is like a bulldog. She doesn't give up until she gets what she wants, and very clever, and, and it's very, it's, it's very um, humorous as well to, to tune into her. But I notice that when she's in one of those uh, heat-seeking modes, <laughs> seeking that next acquisition, 
She's not that happy. She's not any different than any other human being. But I noticed that when she was walking on the rocks, uh, hiking, out in nature, without even knowing it, she naturally, as many people do, she became happy. Just happy. Just happy because there was no, there was nothing in nature that that said anything about you need more. It says everything about everything is here. Everything has been granted. And to me, this is the same reminder that we get when we practice. Even though it's very easy to become greedy about practice, greedy for experiences, greedy for the the bliss that you had another time. But what really fills us, what really heals us, is that connection that we make with that which is always whole, always enough. Someone named Doug Toft wrote this poem many years ago. And there was no title to it. He said, in, in my daily life or in my life, I need more time. I need more money. I need more space. I need more intellectual stimulation. I need to be more assertive. I need to question everything. I need to accept everything. I need to recognize my needs. I need to move up the hierarchy of my needs. I need... When I practice, I don't need needs. Nothing is lacking. Everything has been granted. I move outward needing nothing, wanting only to trace the implications of my fullness. That's why this evening, when I offered the instructions, I said part of our practice is to exploit that uh, fullness, the implications of of my fullness. It's to exploit the sense that you have everything. You're enough. The only time that we lose that sense of enough is when we spend excessive time looking back and excessive time looking forward and excessive time commenting on what's actually happening. And that is usually based on the past anyway. As my teacher Punjaji says, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. He goes on and he says, the boulders of the past rest on your heart and, and suppress your life and your freedom. He says, find the, the root of all those thoughts, of all the, all of the past and the imagined future. Find the root of that and you'll see everything is here. So to me, New Year's, even though it is a, um, it's a date and time, it's, a, it's a wonderful to have these rituals where we, where we mark the end of one period and the beginning of another. These are, this is a useful concept. It's amazing how time in this way uh, reminds us to stay in touch with the timeless. And I notice whenever I, I lack um, 
whenever I'm feeling confined in space, that's when I'm reminded to remember the, the, the vast spaciousness of my mind. And whenever I'm, whenever I'm uh, in a state of confusion, I'm, that's what reminds me to uh, come into contact with the basic wisdom of, of, uh, that I'm here. And I can always remind myself, no matter how lost I get, what's, I can say, what's happening now? And return. So there's something about time, space, and, and knowledge in the, our conventional sense that helps get us in touch with, um, with the timeless and with the, with the, um, the vastness and with the, the true heart of wisdom, which is you, me. So I see when Molly walks among the rocks that she has Buddha nature. She, she's just completely forgotten uh, needing the next uh, Draculaura doll or the next whatever. They, uh, those little teeny bop, you know, there's all these little things that the kids love, little things with huge eyes. <laughs> they always have huge eyes and little teeny bodies. And... It somehow it captures their imagination, <laughs> but but we we're all hungry ghosts in that same way, and that's why we absolutely need to do something to help us stay in touch with that depth within our hearts, that that sense of our interbeing, that sense of our interconnectedness. That was one of the beautiful things about hanging out with the with the Grateful Dead, is there was this great sense of, of, of union with, it somehow just said, yes, I'm part of a family of being. And it's easy to forget that. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh, where he was so in touch with this. When we look in, he is so in touch with this. We, when we look into a be- beautiful chrysanthemum, we get the impression that this flower is full of the cosmos, Everything in the cosmos is there in the flower, including the cloud, the sunshine, the soil, minerals, time, space, everything. It looks like the whole cosmos has come together to manifest the flower. The one contains the all. There is only one thing that is not there. That is a separate entity, a separate existence. The flower is full of the cosmos, of everything else, but the flower is empty of separateness, of a separate self. No separate self, that is the first meaning of emptiness. You cannot be yourself. You have to interbe with the cosmos. And phone rings. And we are all in you. If you look deeply into yourself, you see all of us is in you. That is the beginning of the contemplation of interbeing, focusing on the teaching of emptiness. I have another with me tonight that I'm willing to spoil the whole video so that I can find it. This is from the passage I'm looking for. It was from... Jesus. It's actually from the Gospel according to Thomas. Jesus saw children who were being suckled 
he said to his disciples, These children who are being suckled are like those who enter the kingdom. They said to him, Shall we then, being children, enter the kingdom? Jesus said to them, When you make the two one, and when you make the inner as the outer, as the inner and you and the outer as the inner and the above as the below and when you make the male and the female into a single one so that the male will not be male the female not be female when you make eyes in the place of an eye and a hand in the place of a hand and a foot in the place of a foot and an image in the place of an image then shall you enter the kingdom. I'll read it once more. When you make the two one, and when you make the inner as the outer, and the outer as the inner, and the above as the below, and when you make the male and the female into a single one, so that the male will not be male and the female not be female, when you make eyes in the place of an eye and hand in the place of a hand, foot in the place of a foot, and an image in the place of an image, then you shall enter the kingdom. So he's giving a, a teaching in unity, in, in the non-dual, in the non-separateness. What happens when we stop looking ahead, stop looking back, stop thinking of then, this and that, inner and outer, above and below. Our mind chronically uh, creates duality, creates two. And there is a, then a feeling of separation. And then in the service of, of ending that separation, we try to acquire what it is that we feel separate from or have more of instead of realizing when we stop that the inner and the outer boundaries melt. The above and below melt. The self and other melt in our stillness, in our immediacy, in our timelessness. So my intention is to not lose contact with this a Dharma essence, to stay, to do everything on behalf of staying in that state of connection, which I said before is wakefulness, is authenticity, sincerity, kindness. Just want to say, in terms of wise view, or uh, called right intention, or uh, not wise view, right intention or wise intention. The first one I talked about was the intention for renunciation. The second one is the intention for uh, to incline toward goodwill. This is to counteract our tendency toward ill will, and to to uh, to counterbalance that habit of of easily projecting our internal upsets, which are many. There are many. Many, 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 many things trigger us. If you're human, you get triggered every day. If you have sense experience, you will get triggered. You will experience unpleasant experience. And when we experience unpleasant experience, we don't like it. And when we don't like it, 
and we don't really pay attention to that feeling of dislike and really stay present with it, which we don't most of the time, our mind immediately proliferates into uh, to not just not liking, but um, being really disagreeable and then getting rid of that disagreeable feeling by projecting it on who we consider the cause of that disagreeable feeling. Not recognizing that the, disagree the, the ill will that we feel, no one can cause. It comes out of our own reactivity. And yet, it continually gets projected on others, on the world, on ourselves, on our, at least the idea of ourselves. And it just keeps getting, like a muscle, keeps getting flexed and strengthened. And it hardens into a, a, a very reactive habit. And all of us have our own version of, of getting triggered with ill will. I've confessed my delusions about that many times here. The last one was, I think I told, was about the, the security guy at the airport in, in Saskatchewan who tried to keep me from getting through. and I got quite angry. And Anyway, don't need to tell the story again. But we make the commitment... Knowing that we're easily triggered, we make the commitment to counterbalance that, counteract that with the cultivation of goodwill, of loving kindness. Practicing inclining toward joining, not separating. Toward melting away that, that sense of, um, of contraction that tends to harden when our mind or our thoughts or our actions um, uh, inclined toward toward ill will when because of that tendency toward ill will the what really softens it what really eases, eases it is uh, being kind being gentle and finally what what uh, counters our tendency toward out of ill will or out of greed causing harm with our speech, out of, out of greed, out of ill will, out of ignorance, causing harm with our speech or our actions. Uh, we counter that by committing ourselves, and hopefully you will for the new year, committing ourselves to harmlessness, to not causing harm, to being, care, being careful in our speech careful in our actions, careful in our sexuality, uh, not causing, not doing anything that someone, um, where someone would, if you can't, to the best of your intention, where someone would feel harmed by what you said or did. And if you do act in some way that was harmful, that you immediately feel it and that you feel remorse, <laughs> that you feel you don't feel blame or, or, or self-hatred because that just reinforces ill will, but that you feel remorse and you really take in the impact of whatever you may have said. I get a lot of practice with that, having a partner. Uh, <laughs> having a partner is a hot fire. And it's really easy to just dump. It's... And it doesn't, um, and it, it's poisonous. 
But fortunately, I, f- I, I feel a lot of remorse when I make an idiot of myself. Boy, there was some ill will in that statement. Please. Elaborate. Well, I'd like you to make differentiate something. I I was just speaking with somebody last week, a very young person who's addicted to heroin. Speaking to a person last week who's addicted to heroin. And she was telling me that she wanted to do other drugs because she felt that it was spiritual. And you made the comment when you started about how you had these experiences. And I would like it if you could differentiate yes. what spirituality is and what having an experience. Yes. If you'd like me to differentiate uh, spirituality and having a spiritual experience on drugs. Well, clearly the, experience, the spiritual experience I had on uh, various psychedelics were temporary, as are spiritual experiences of any kind. They're temporary. They were really valuable, but they were not very reliable as a place that I could rest. And when one has a, an experience, whether even if it was helpful and and as you as you might call it spiritual, it left in its wake. It leaves in its wake something like heroin, something like alcohol, something like all kinds of drugs. It leaves in its wake a mis placed faith that that is that experience can give you any some kind of lasting happiness and in the long run what it does is it leaves you more hungry more um, I mean beyond not just hungry it leaves you completely disconnected from reality and it's it's ultimately the cause of suffering the very thing that if understood in its in its um, understood in its value in, a, in, a, in the short term, it's not so great in the long run. So I'm thankful for my time doing doing uh, recreational psychedelics. I didn't do that many, but I did enough to for it to perk up my consciousness a little bit. And I knew though that it was useless to keep doing that. And I'm thankful that I found something more reliable, which is which is just being awake that the real extraordinary is in the ordinary. And if I'm really here, if I don't lose touch, I am being with you right now is psychedelic. There's no doubt about it. And it's only my mind, my mind's confusion that thinks that if I took something or drank something or bought something that I would feel better. Nothing as my favorite, one of my favorite teachers, Nisargadatta, puts it, nothing can make you happier than you are, fundamentally. That all search for happiness is misery. And leads to more misery. That the only happiness worth that name is the natural happiness of being conscious. So, I don't know if that speaks to your question. But our heart breaks for people who have that misplaced faith. And, uh, and all you can do is hopefully they get exposed to wisdom teachings and, and uh, get help and find love in the right places instead of the wrong places. 
So I'm, we have about five minutes. I'm curious if anybody wants to um, to speak of their speak out loud of what you'd like to shed or what you would like to cultivate during this next uh, period, because uh, there's something, at least there's a certain a certain view which I tend to have some belief in that whatever you bring to this kind of a gathering that's devoted to truth and authenticity to that's devoted to awakening whatever you bring here will be will be um, liberated will be supported so if anybody wants to say anything in these last minutes about the the new year don't want to hear anything about the last year please embarrassing to ask, but um, you brought this up before and you said it again tonight, that it's really important to realize that what we're doing is projecting um, onto other people the sources. Yes, when we realize, yeah, what we're doing is projecting the source. Well, the, the part that's a, the projection is the sense that that person has caused you to be angry. That person has just said or did whatever they did or do what they do. And you're, the fact that you're angry, th- there is not a, a direct causal relationship between what that person says or does and you being angry because I don't want to go into this too much because I really want to open up the floor but if you lined up a hundred people dealing with that same person doing and saying those same things you might get a hundred different reactions so it's not inherent in that person's behavior or what they do that, that you get angry one person would feel compassion, another person would just laugh it off, another person would get furious, another person would hit, you would get a whole different, but that reaction is, it's not unrelated to that person, but it, it's, there's not a, it's not a one-on-one causal relationship. It really has to filter through all of your conditioning. And so our practice is to... Uh, is to clarify our own conditioning so that, so that our internal world doesn't get immediately dumped onto the external. So that there can be a safe melting away of the internal and the external. Because in that world of anger, it's reinforcing the sense of two, the sense of separateness. Can't get too much more into it. Please. No, Amy. Is this part of your resolution? Okay. <laughs> If, you're, if your heart is, is really open, you're in touch with yourself, you would never do that. 
He just wouldn't do that. That's. You yes, people are doing harm all the time. But whether I get angry or not about it is really completely in individual. Yes, people do a lot of harm in this world. But hatred never ceased by hatred. Harm never ceased by harming back. So that's all. Thank you. Please. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, naturally. I appreciate you naming that, and it's a good reminder for everyone that of all the the most wholesome qualities, what are called the immeasurable qualities of love, compassion. Um, sympathetic joy, being able to enjoy somebody's good fortune, and equanimity, the balance, unshakable balance of mind, of those four qualities, that, uh, that altruistic quality, that altruistic joy, that appreciative joy is the most difficult one to cultivate because of the, the heart, the, uh, the conditioning of the comparing mind, and envy, jealousy, and uh, what we, how we work with that is we just we we just appreciate the pain of that. We let that we touch that with compassion and kindness, and we in our own in all the ways that you can, you try to to join in others' good fortune, and catch it. I think you can. Last one, then we have to call it a night. Practicing for a year. Yes. Yes. Less fear of people and separateness, more friendship. Yes. Yes, now you want to go out, but in how that I think where those two meet, it's to be with others and not leave home. Yeah. You know, and then it, autonomy is actually the, the greatest the cause of connection, paradoxically. If you're really settled in yourself, then you start feeling. If you're unsettled in yourself, then every then you're bounced around by everything and everyone. So I think you're that's a great intention for this year. And it's certainly not counter to the meditation practice. It's really the natural fruit of practice. So 
I appreciate the few that got a chance to share, and I appreciate all of you. Even though we were a little, little quieter group tonight, a little smaller group, I'm really happy that you came out on the uh, first of January, and I wish you all the the best, best, best New Year. I want to end with just the the recommendation of um, living a dharmic life. Uh, that was spoken, I think this is from the ninth century maybe, <laughs> but it's still relevant today. This is called Living in the World by Ashvagosa. Ashvagosha. The Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person to go into homelessness or to resign from the world unless he or she feels called upon to do so. The Dharma of the Buddha requires every person to free themselves from the illusion of separateness and self, to cleanse one's heart, to give up one's thirst for pleasure, and lead a life of righteousness. And whatever people do, whether they remain in the world as artisans, merchants, or officers of the king or queen, or retire from the world and devote themselves to a life of religious meditation, let them put their whole heart into the task. Let them be diligent and energetic. And if, like the lotus flower, which grows out of muddy water, but remains untouched by the mud, they engage in a life without cherishing envy or hatred. And if they live in the world... Not a life of self, but a life of truth. Then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their minds. So may you all have joy, peace, and bliss dwell in your hearts and minds. And may your joy, peace, and bliss be the cause of joy, peace, and bliss for all beings everywhere. May every moment of your practice be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. May all beings be liberated.